0: Essays twenty two through twenty eight of It's a Good Old World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. It's a Good Old World by Bruce Barton. Essay number twenty two. And He Goeth. Several years ago, when I had just been promoted to my first real job, I called on a business friend of mine. He is a wise and experienced handler of men. I asked him what suggestions he could make about executive responsibility. You are about to make the great discovery, he said. Within a week or two, you will know why it is that executives grow gray and die before their time. You will have learned the bitter truth that there are no efficient people in the world. I am still very far from admitting that he was right, but I know well enough what he meant. Every man knows who has ever been responsible for a piece of work, or had to meet a payroll. Recently another friend of mine built a house. The money to build it represented a difficult period of saving on the part of himself and his wife. It meant overtime work and self-denial, and extra effort in behalf of a long-cherished dream. One day, when the work was well along, he visited it and saw a workman climbing a ladder to the roof with a little bunch of shingles in his hands. Look here, the foreman cried. Can't you carry a whole bundle of shingles? The workman regarded him solemnly. I suppose I could, he answered, if I wanted to bull the job. By bull the job, he meant do an honest day's work. At ten o'clock one morning I met still another man in his office in New York he was munching a sandwich and gulping a cup of coffee which his secretary had brought into him i had to work late last night he said and meet a very early appointment this morning my wife asked our maid to have breakfast a half hour early so that i might have a bite and still be here in time when i came down to breakfast the maid was still in bed She lives in his home, and eats, and is clothed by means of money which his brain provides, but she has no interest in his success, no care whatever except to do the minimum of work. The real trouble with the world today is a moral trouble, said a thoughtful man recently. A large proportion of its people have lost all conception of what it means to render an adequate service in return for the wages they are paid. He is a generous man. On almost any sort of question, his sympathies are likely to be with labor, and so are mine. I am glad that men work shorter hours than they used to, and in certain instances I think the hours should be even shorter. I am glad they are paid higher wages, and hope they may earn still more. But there are times when my sympathy goes out to those in whose behalf no voice is ever raised, to the executives of the world, whose hours are limited only by the limit of their physical and mental endurance, who carry not merely the load of their own work, but the heart-breaking load of carelessness and stolid indifference in so many of the folks whom they employ. Perhaps the most successful executive in history was that centurion of the Bible. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, he said. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. Marvelous man! The modern executive also says, Go, and too often the man who should have gone will appear a day or two later and explain, I didn't understand what you meant. He says, Come, and at the appointed time his telephone rings and a voice speaks, saying, I overslept and will be there in three quarters of an hour. End of essay number twenty two. Essay number twenty three In a Manger. Just a group of simple shepherds they were, going about their jobs as usual, with no suspicion that this night would be different from any other. And to them, of all men in the world, the heavenly vision came. In their ears, mingled with the noises of their daily toil, the angel voices sounded. Thousands of men were looking eagerly for the appearance of the Messiah that night, as they had looked for his appearance every night for years. Surely with great acclaim he would come in a king's palace with signs and wonders to restore his chosen people. And while their eyes were fixed on high to see the great event, lo, the great event took place at their very feet, and they never saw it. He came to the world out of the depths, not on the heights. They found him lying in a manger. It often happens so in life. There is in the world to-day a man who has toiled terribly that he might achieve a vast success he has piled dollar upon dollar and business upon business mounting to the top of the great pile which he has made he has looked longingly for a glimpse of the thing worth while and he has not found it while only one short block from his home in a little cottage surrounded by his red-cheeked children a man who will never have ten thousand dollars to his name looks out on life through reverent eyes and finds it wonderful Not in the palace on that street will one find the kingdom of happiness, but in the little cottage, even as they found him, years ago, lying in a manger. There is another man who cherishes in his heart the vision of a reconstructed social order. He hopes, by laws and ordinances, and by this and that, to hedge the people in and mold them, so that they must be good in spite of themselves. His mind is full of social betterment, and in his heart is no appreciation whatever of the people whom he seeks to better. He has no confidence in them. He forgets that it was from them Lincoln sprang. He forgets that it was the French Revolution, in spite of its violence and not the thought and plan of statesmen, that started the modern world on its great roll toward democracy. Almost every great movement has grown up from below, yet he does not understand it. He thinks to hand improvement down like old clothes from above he seeks the millennium from on high and behold at his very feet the millennium is slowly working itself into being even as the great beginning of the millennium came not in a king's palace but in a manger it is an easy thing to fix one's eyes on the distant splendor and pressing toward it lose the nearer splendor that lies everywhere about it is a temptation to say I am so busy with the great work I'm doing My activities are so important that I cannot be bothered about little things. He who was born in a manger was never busy. With the burden of the world on his shoulders, he was not too preoccupied to hear the cry of a single blind man. Wearied by anxious hours of toil, he was not too weary to open his arms to little children. Take time to live each day in simple friendliness. This would be his message to you the kingdom of happiness lies not far off but close about you it was thus that the shepherds discovered it in the midst of their daily job the heavenly light broke around them with the noises of their regular routine labor in their ears the voice of the angel shouted you shall find him lying in a manger end of essay number twenty three essay number twenty four why your eyes are in the front of your head. In 1833 a clerk in the Patent Office at Washington handed in his resignation. It was an interesting document touched with pathos. He had found the work congenial, he said. He was sorry to leave it. But his conscience would not allow him to continue to draw pay under false pretenses. There was no more need for a job like his. Every possible invention had been conceived and patented there was nothing left to invent in eighteen thirty three and nothing left to invent before the railroads had spanned the continent before electricity lighted our streets and moved our cars before the telephone or the wireless or the steam shovel or the dynamo at the very threshold of the greatest period of mechanical advance that the world has ever known this young man threw up his hands a large section of the human race in any age belongs to the class of that mistaken young man you find men at every period their eyes gripped by the past looking forward when they look at all only to shudder and to fear they were the people who criticized jefferson bitterly because he paid the enormous sum of sixty million francs for the worthless tract of land beyond the alleghanies Fortunately, he withstood their criticism and persisted in his extravagant, high-handed course, and the richest agricultural empire in the world was added to our territory at a cost of less than four cents an acre. They sneered at Fulton when his steamship lay building in the dry dock. The idea of a fool supposing that he could run a boat without the aid of wind or tide. And the children of these men of little faith stand today aghast at the prospect of what may happen to the world in the months that are before us. I met a few days ago a rich man who shook his head lugubriously. I am turning everything I can to gold or government bonds, he said, and I am not so sure about the bonds. We are going to have terrible times, mark my words. The same day a laborer spoke to me, nodding sagely i tell you we have no idea of the troubles that are coming to us he said europe is bankrupt and we are on the way they did not need to tell me that we are to have some trying times i know it as well as the next man you cannot shake the earth from its very foundations and expect to set it back in place again without a jar but i know this which they do not know or do not believe at least that the world with all its times of trouble still moves ahead No man can play a big part in the world who does not believe in the future of the world. There is a thrill in the thought of the days ahead, with the rising of peoples long oppressed and the overturn of customs long outgrown. Suppose it does cost us part of the money we have saved. We are young and can make some more. Suppose it does throw some of us into new jobs. There is joy in a job that is new. It is pleasant to read the history of the past, but the wise man does his historical reading at night when the day's work is done. During the working hours, he keeps his eyes on the great and glorious and thrilling future. For eyes were made to look forward. That's why they're placed in the front of the head. End of essay number twenty four. Essay number twenty five. Would you be great? Then expect suffering, for it is the stuff greatness is made of. I have been reading the tragic, inspiring story of a great man. His work has enriched the life of every generation since his own. But his life was a long, dark day of suffering. This man was Ludwig von Beethoven. He was born in a humble cottage in Bonn in the year 1770. His parents were poor, but that is a minor matter. The parents of most great men have been poor. Tragedy entered Beethoven's life not by reason of his parents' poverty, but because they were utterly incapable of appreciating the fine spiritual gift that was in the boy. His father had no thought but to exploit the son's musical talent. At the age of eleven he was playing in theater orchestras and carrying burdens far too heavy for his young shoulders to bear. His health was poor, there were none to appreciate his genius, and in the glory of his young manhood, when he was just beginning to feel his power, his life was clouded by an irremediable calamity. He began to lose his hearing. Think of it. A musician, dependent on the fine harmony of sounds for his success, and death at twenty-six. Poverty-stricken, unloved, betrayed, and flouted by the nephew for whom he had sacrificed everything, this unconquerable spirit yet gave to the world music that has gladdened the hearts of millions of men and women in every land i have no friend i must live alone he said but i know that in my heart god is nearer to me than to others i approach him without fear i have always known him neither am i anxious about my music which no adverse fate will overtake and which will free him who understands it from the misery which afflicts others and at another time i want to prove that whoever acts rightly and nobly can by that alone bear misfortune No man can read these words, remembering Beethoven's life, without feeling his own soul enriched and strengthened. It is a significant thing that a large proportion of the great lives of history have been conceived in suffering and nurtured on disappointment and pain. We think of Lincoln as the great storyteller. But if you would know the real Lincoln, look at the deep lines in his face. Napoleon conquered the world, yet he almost never laughed. He was never really well never rose from his bed feeling rested he was so depressed as a young man that he seriously contemplated ending his life it was a famous writer who said what has been well written has been well suffered the lives of the great heroes were lives of long martyrdom says Romain roland in the life of beethoven from which i have quoted A tragic destiny willed their souls to be forged on the anvil of physical and moral grief, of misery and ill health. There is this consolation to you in your hours of disappointment and distress, that suffering is the stuff out of which true greatness grows. Yield to it weakly, and it will destroy you. Rise a conqueror of it, and by that act you become a finer spirit, a greater man or woman. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, said Jesus of Nazareth. By lifted up, he meant lifted up on the cross, crucified. Only by his suffering and death could he become the cure and savior of the world. There was no shortcut, no easier way, to greatness and glory for him, and there seldom is for any man. End of essay number 25 Essay Number 26. If There Were Only Attacks on Talk At a public dinner some weeks ago, five speakers were scheduled. It was agreed that each would speak for twenty minutes, a hundred minutes of oratory, all that any patient audience ought to be called upon to stand. The first man spoke twenty-two minutes. The second man spoke twenty-five. The third man stood on his feet and rambled along for an hour and forty-four minutes. The other two speakers, with an amount of Christian charity and common sense not often found among platform habitués, had meanwhile folded their tents and gone home. The speaker has an unfair advantage over a writer. Any reader of this piece can, at any moment, decide that it is not worth reading and move on, as doubtless many do. But no man rises in the middle of a public address jams on his hat and stamps down the aisle we are held by a certain convention of courtesy and nine speakers out of ten presume upon that fact only once in a blue moon does a man arise and without palaver drive right to the point making his statement in a few crisp words and sitting down before we are ready to have him stop such a one leaves us gasping with relief and admiration we would, with the slightest encouragement, shout for him for president. He glistens in our memory, and we mention his name with a certain awe when the names of speakers are told. Brevity is so popular a virtue that I cannot understand why more speakers do not cultivate it. It is one of the keys to immortality. Two men spoke at Gettysburg on the same afternoon during the Civil War. One man was named Everett the leading orator of his day and he made a typically great oration what reader of this page has ever heard it referred to or could repeat a single line the other speaker read from a slip of paper less than three hundred words his speech lincoln's gettysburg address will live forever greeley used to say that the way to write a good editorial was to write it to the best of your ability then cut it in two in the middle and print the last half When a reporter complained to Dana that he could not possibly cover a certain story in six hundred words, Dana sent him to the Bible. The whole story of the creation of the world is told in less than six hundred, he exclaimed. Everything is taxed these days, except talk, and no tax could be more popular from the standpoint of the patient consumer. The tax should be graded, like the income tax. Let speeches of five minutes or under be exempt. From 5 to 10 minute speeches, 10%, 10 to 15 minutes, 15%, over 30 minutes, 60%, and over an hour, 100%, with double taxes on all speeches in Congress. Only by some such rigorous treatment will the spoken word regain a position of respect, and silence receive the honor that is its due. There is one historical character who has fascinated me. His name was Enoch. The honor conferred upon him has been enjoyed by no other, yet his whole biography is written in less than twenty words. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So far as we know he was the only man ever selected by the Almighty as a walking companion. And there is every indication that he was a man of very few words. End of essay number 26 essay number twenty seven the great god must a few days ago a successful man sat in my office discussing his business our organization is all right we're showing good profits he said the only thing we lack is a boss that can make things hum as they used to in the old days when we were poor and struggling the best thing that could happen to the business would be for me to lose all my money i don't have to worry anymore i don't have to work And try as he may, the man who doesn't have to work can't put the same fire into it as he did when his living and his future were at stake. The next afternoon at the club I ran into a college mate whose father left him plenty of money. He had as much ability as any man in his class, and he has worked at one job and another after a fashion. No one could accuse him of being shiftless. But always in the back of his mind was the consciousness that he did not need to work. If he lost the job, if it proved unpleasant, and he quit, nothing vital was sacrificed. He still could live and wait to look around for something more according to his fancy. So while some other men, who have had to hustle from commencement day, have made real places for themselves, he still is holding jobs, none of which seem to him quite worth holding. There is something in all this worth remembering in days when the air is so full of schemes for reorganizing the world on an easier basis. All the socialistic systems I have ever heard of, all the plans for substituting governmental ownership for private ownership, break down when you ask this impertinent question. But how are you going to get men to work? William James, the psychologist, pointed out long ago that even the most ambitious of us live at about half our actual capacity. It's only when we are stirred by a great demand, an insistent necessity, that we accomplish the sort of things that make us proud of our humanity. The war proved that to millions of men. We subscribed for liberty bonds away beyond our capacity to pay. We didn't see how we could possibly work our way out. Yet we did work our way out. We did, because we had to. I have seen writers become so well fixed financially that they could take things easy now i can do really fine work they say i have leisure and can wait until i am fully rested and then produce a masterpiece which shall show no trace of pressure or necessity and usually they produce nothing at all most of the great works of art have been the creation of men who needed food and drink and room rent Old Mother Hubbard, when she went to the cupboard and found not even a single bone, was then in perfect condition to sit down and write a first-class novel, or carve an immortal statue, or start a beauty parlor that would have made her rich. We need a little more clear thinking these days, a new gospel of work, and a new definition of independence. We have talked about independence as though it meant leisure, freedom from responsibility, the opportunity to loaf. But real independence is mastery, the proud consciousness of being able to do a task a little better than the average, and the assurance that the task itself will provide the reward of every legitimate desire. We want the world to be every year an easier and happier and more comfortable place. But our progress toward that end will be mightily diminished if we ever institute a social system that banishes the iron mastery of the great God MUST. End of Essay number 27 Essay number 28 Put great men to work for you. It doesn't cost a thing. Considering that it costs nothing, I am surprised that so few people have the great men of the world working for them. Personally, I should hardly know how to get through a week without their help. I am in a business that has no office hours. There is no one except myself to assign my work and see that it gets done and frequently there are days when I kick against my boss and do not feel like doing any work at all. For such days I have discovered a remedy. I go to my desk a little early, and, instead of starting at once to work, I pick up the biography of some great man and read a chapter out of the most interesting portion of his life. After half an hour or so, I am conscious of a new feeling. My spiritual shoulders are straighter, my reluctance has disappeared. I say to myself, How trivial is my task compared with the marvels he achieved! I am on fire with his example, eager to make the day count. The discovery that great men can be drafted for help in even the humblest office is not original with me. Many another has profited by it. Emerson, for example. I cannot even hear of personal vigor of any kind, great power of performance, without fresh resolution, he says. We are emulous of all that men do. Cecil's saying of Sir Walter Raleigh, I know that he can toil terribly, is an electric touch. So are Clarendon's portraits of Handon, who was of an industry and vigilance not to be tired out or wearied by the most laborious, and of parts not to be imposed upon by the most subtle and sharp, and of a personal courage equal to his best parts. And of Falkland, who was so severe an adorer of truth, that he could as easily have given himself leave to steal as to dissemble. We cannot read Plutarch without a tingling of the blood. And I accept the saying of the Chinese Mercius, A sage is the instructor of a hundred ages. When the manners of Lu are heard of, the stupid become intelligent, and the wavering determined. There is, in biography, an antidote for almost every mood. Are we discouraged? A half hour with Lincoln, carrying patiently his great load, never once losing faith, makes me properly ashamed of myself. Are we inclined to be afraid? It stirs new depths of courage in us to read of Stonewall Jackson, whose motto was, Never take counsel of your fears. Do we vacillate between two courses of action? There is in all literature no such warning against vacillation as the pitiful uncertainties of poor Cicero. I would recommend these willing helpers to every man who finds his task sometimes heavy beyond his individual strength. There is no limit to their service. The fact that I employ them does not keep them from working with equal efficiency for you. They answer at a moment's notice, and may be dismissed peremptorily, without the slightest hurt upon their feelings. In their companionship is the secret of mental and spiritual growth. It is fairly easy to be as great as our contemporaries. It is hard to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps to distinguished effort and achievement. But these great men, any one of us, may make his own contemporaries and companions, if he will, and there is no danger that we will outgrow them. They are a daily stimulation to that which is best and most effective in us. They stand out like golden peaks of achievement, along which even the least of us may climb a little nearer to his best ideals. End of Essay number 28